Well, good morning. Please open up your Bibles to John chapter 1. This mini-series we've been going through for the past three weeks, and these first 18 verses of John has been intended to help all of us take one step forward in getting our finite minds wrapped around the person of Jesus. See, I'm convinced that our view of Jesus is often shaped not by what the Bible says about him, but by what our culture says or through some other outside source. And so one of the greatest needs of our day today is to, with great care and discipline, to sit and stare at the biblical portraits of Jesus so that our understanding of him is formed and reformed according to the truth in the Bible. And so two weeks ago, in the first three verses of John 1, we saw the unimaginable greatness of Jesus. From the highest of heights, we saw him. And then last week, in verses 4 to 13, we discovered that Jesus, the light of the world, divides the world into two major categories. There are those that will hear the good news of the gospel, are born again, and will receive Jesus by faith. And there are those that, no matter how much they hear the good news of the gospel, they will continue to reject him. This morning, our focus is on these verses here, 14 to 18, so let me read them for us. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. The aim of these verses, I believe, is to show us that Jesus is full of glory and full of grace. We discover from the text that we will look at three things today that help us understand how Jesus is full of glory and grace. And so let's look at the passage together, beginning in verses 14 and 18. The first thing we see there is that Jesus, full of glory, completely explains God to us. Well, as we saw from last week, John is writing with Old Testament themes in his rearview mirror. And so as he's portraying Jesus to us, painting a picture of Jesus for us, he can't help but draw on what he's reading in the Old Testament. That, of course, continues here in verses 14 to 18. And what he wants us to do is to look with him in the rearview mirror, back to the Old Testament, to help us understand the glory and grace of Jesus. Verse 14 says this, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That phrase, dwelt among us, literally means pitched his tent. He took up residence here on the earth. In saying that, John is making reference to the tabernacle. In the Old Testament, the tabernacle played a central role in the life of God's people. In Exodus 25, we learn that God instructed Moses to have the people make a sanctuary so that he would dwell in their midst, which is where God uniquely dwelled, the tabernacle. Additionally, then in Exodus 33, we learn that Moses would set up a tent of meeting outside the camp, 
And if anyone wanted to go and meet with God, they would go out to the tent and meet with him. So it was in those physical structures of the tabernacle that God dwelled with his people. And the tent of meeting where he uniquely made his presence known, where he would go and meet with God. So it was in those physical structures that God revealed the intensity and the immensity of his glory. So for John to say here that the word became flesh, which we know is Jesus, and dwelt among us, is not just a cutesy way of John saying Jesus lived on the earth. He's saying so much more about Jesus. He's saying that now, in the person of Jesus, God has uniquely made his presence known here on the earth, as he had done in the tabernacle. And if we want to go and meet God, we have to go through Jesus. That's what John is picking up on here. And so the way we meet God today, the way we see God today, today, the way we get to know God today, is not by going to any kind of physical structure like a temple or a sanctuary. It can happen in spaces like this as we together open up the word and discover it together. But what the point is, is that we no longer have to go to a physical place to meet God. We now have to go to a person, Jesus. Jesus has replaced the tabernacle. He is God dwelling with man. Well, look at what John says next in verse 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. Now the Bible uses the word glory there, which John repeats twice, to describe the weight of something, or literally it's, it's heaviness. And so it's sometimes used to describe actually how much somebody physically weighs, or it can be used to describe the importance of a particular person, the weight that they carry. So for John to say that the apostles saw the glory of Jesus means that they saw his weightiness. Not his physical weight, but what they concluded that was that all the heaviness of God was in Jesus, fully in Jesus. So the weight of God's presence that was experienced by God's people in the tabernacle is now clearly and more fully experienced in the person of Jesus himself. The glory that John and others eventually saw was that Jesus was the Son of God. Remember the main purpose why John wrote this entire book from John 20, 30 and 31 was to convince people that this Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God. And so that title is important. It means something. It means that Jesus is exactly like the Father. He is of the same substance. He was not created, but he is the unique, one-of-a-kind Son of God, the Father. And so the glory that the Son of God possessed from all of eternity past with the Father is now with Jesus on the earth. The heaviness of God. Jesus is full of God's glory. 
Well, how did they conclude that about Jesus? How did they know that he possessed the heaviness of God's presence? That's a pretty big thing to conclude about somebody. You see, Jesus wasn't floating around like an angelic figure. And he probably didn't have a white halo above his head. Not some strange glow about him as he walked around. There was no neon signs above his head saying, The Messiah! The Messiah! He was a real man. How did they conclude this about him? Well, throughout the book of John, what we see is that the curtain that is hiding the glory of Jesus is slowly being peeled back. It's seen most clearly at the cross and at his resurrection. But one of the ways that peels back the veil that's covering Jesus' glory through the book of John is through the miraculous signs that John records for us. You see, the miracles that Jesus does in this book are like road signs. They're pointing to something deeper. The miracles are wonderful and and they're amazing, no doubt about that. But they point to something deeper. They peel back the curtain on the glory of God. A great example of this is over in John chapter 2. So uh, if you need to turn your page or look over there with me, look at John 2. In John 2, the first 11 verses, we had the famous story of Jesus in Cana at a wedding feast. And during the wedding feast, the bridal party has run out of wine. And so we know the story. Jesus takes these six massive jars of water, each containing 230 gallons of water, and turns all of it into wine. That's a lot of wine. But what he does is then he gives it over to the bridal party. This is an amazing display of Jesus' power. But it's more than just a magic trick. It's not like a David Copperfield magic trick, you know, where he just kind of does something amazing and everyone's going, whoa, what happened? Look at verse 11 of chapter 2. This is the first of his signs that Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Do you see it there? The miracle of water to wine is a sign. It was a sign that led the disciples to see the weightiness of Jesus. And as a result, they believed in him. So as the disciples walked and lived with Jesus, they were seeing what he was doing and came to the conclusion that this Jesus was the long-awaited Christ, the Son of God. The one who'd been promised long and long, hundreds of years before this time. He is the heaviness of God in human flesh. Verse 18 is so very important. Because it explains to us then that this Jesus who is full of the glory of God. Completely explains God to us. So look down at verse 18 of chapter 1. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Now this verse repeats many of the themes from verse 1 of chapter 1, that Jesus is God, but it goes one step further for us. It says that no one has ever seen God, but they had seen the Son of God, and they had seen his glory. You see, the Son of God became a Son of Man so that the sons of men could know the Father. 
Jesus, who is full of glory, explains God to us. And so if we want to know God, if we want to meet with God, if we want to explain God, then we need to look no further than Jesus. Recently, the woman who shaped millions of people through her very popular TV talk show here in Chicago ended her career. She will remain nameless, of course, but you may know who I'm talking about. She ended her show with an overtly spiritual message in which she tried to define God to her audience. This is exactly what she said. I'm talking about the same God you talk about. I'm talking about the Alpha and Omega, the omniscient, the omnipresent, the ultimate consciousness, the source, the force, the all of everything there is, the one and only G-O-D. Very interesting definition, isn't it? On the surface, sounds somewhat orthodox. But in actuality, it's a modern-day, culturally relevant, culturally relevant, syncretistic blend of some Christian beliefs with some New Age beliefs. And so she's developed kind of a, a mosaic of God. She's taken a piece of this and a piece of that. Maybe you've seen a mosaic picture that kind of has p- bits and pieces of pottery from here and there pulled together to make a picture. And it's sometimes skewed. You can kind of tell what it is. Well, this is what this type of definition does. It's a syncretistic definition of God that many Americans are buying into. So she refers to God as the ultimate consciousness and a force in the same sentence as saying that he is the alpha and the omega. You see, her blending of terms shows us that in general, there is no longer a common denominator explanation of God. You see, in our world today, we're using the same words, but we mean very different things sometimes. And it can feel then as though the definition of God is up for grabs, that you can make him how you want and I can make him how I want. The reality is that biblically, the definition of God is not up for grabs. It's not up to us to define him or to redefine him according to our liking. Jesus is the one who completely explains God to us. And so if we want to know what God is like, we need to look at Jesus. He explains God to us. And so in a world that's full of syncretism, it's vital for us to guard ourselves from creating a blended definition of God. It's imperative that we understand that Jesus is the one who explains God to us so that our explanation does become Blended. It's said that one of the best ways to identify a counterfeit $20 bill is by spending time studying and and feeling and smelling a real $20 bill so that when we actually maybe encounter a fake one, we know what it is. Well, the same is true for God. If we want to recognize a fake or faulty definition of God, then the only way for us to do so is to be so familiar with the Jesus of the Bible that when those definitions come up, we're able to recognize it and toss it aside completely. Jesus is full of God's glory. 
He is the one who explains God to us. We need to look no further. Second thing we see from this passage, verses 16 and 17, and that is that Jesus, full of grace, delivers God's grace to us. It appears that verses 14 and 16 are connected to each other, and they give us an insight into the character of God. And so it literally reads like this. We're going to skip the parentheses and start at the end of verse 14. We have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Because of his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. So these two verses communicate to us that Jesus, Jesus is not only filled with the glory of God, but that he's also full of the grace and truth of God. And then he's the one who delivers that grace to us. The emphasis there on grace and truth as it's repeated twice has its Old Testament roots in Exodus 34. In Exodus 34, the Lord declares to Moses that he will keep steadfast love and faithfulness to a thousand generations. What that means is that God is going to continue to draw men and women to himself in a covenantal relationship which is based on God's ability to meet the demands of the relationship. You see, the relationship between God and man is established on God's abilities to meet those demands, not on man's abilities, not on our abilities to keep the covenant. It's up to God. And so according to John here, Jesus is full of grace and truth. He's full of that steadfast love that he is the one who delivers it to us. So John developed this by bringing in Moses here in verse 17. Look at verse 17 with me. In this verse here, John seems to be contrasting Moses with Jesus. Not because the law... It's not a gracious gift. The law is a grace to us. The law is good. The contrast here is that Moses points to grace, but Jesus performs grace. That's the difference here. And so Moses may have mediated the best gift that he could in giving the law, but enormously superior to that is the presence of God himself, Jesus So it's through Jesus' sinless life, through his perfect obedience to the law that Moses recorded, that he fulfills the demands of that covenantal relationship. And so he's perfect and he's sinless, establishes that relationship. Because on our own, we can never do it. We can never meet the demands that the law puts on us. All the law does is reveal how sinful we are how far short we fall from meeting it and our need then for grace and our need for a savior the ultimate expression of God's steadfast love and faithfulness then is not ultimately seen in sending the law but in sending Jesus who fulfills the law for us and then creates a people for himself from every tribe every tongue, and every nation. And so for us to receive that grace from God means that we've received his favor. Not because of anything that we have done, 
Not because we have worked for anything. Not because we've done anything on our own to meet the demands of the law. Jesus has done it for us. Think of how incredibly important that is. The God of the universe did not just meet some of the demands of the law and leave maybe 5% for you and I then to pick up. He did all of it on our behalf. And we can do nothing to earn his favor. And yet what he does is he freely distributes it to his chosen children. All the major religions of the world have that turned upside down. They all put man's efforts to earn salvation right at the center, right at the heart. But the Christian message actually turns that right side up. Although it may feel like it's upside down to the world, the Christian message is actually the right side up. You see, it's God reaching out to man and doing everything on their behalf. Not just some of it, all of it. That is great grace. And there's freedom and there is delight when we see with our spiritual eyes the love and the grace. God has reached out to hardened sinners like you and like me. And he's delivered that grace to us. Getting this grace right matters for the gospel. But let's go one more step because it also matters for our obedience as well. If we fail to grasp the true nature of grace, it will result in messed up motives for obedience to God. Let me explain what I mean. From Romans 6, we learn that God's grace is not a license for us to live however we want to live. God certainly does require obedience of his children, but our motivation for obedience often originates from that faulty understanding of grace. This is what it looks like. We often tie obedience to gratitude for what God has done, which on the surface sounds like a pretty good Christian motive. It looks like this maybe in our life. God has done so much for me Now what can I do for him? But think about that for a minute. What does that line of thinking do to grace? You know what it does? It implies that the debt that we now have is not to pay for our sins, but now we have to pay God back for sending Jesus to the cross. John Piper says that when we view obedience this way, we've turned God's grace into a business transaction between two willing parties. And so God was willing to send Jesus to the cross, so I'm willing to do something for him now. That line of thinking has turned grace into a kind gesture of reciprocity between the God of the universe and us. That kind of thinking is ingrained in our mindset. So, for example, let's say that after church today, you're probably all getting a little hungry. The person next to you invites you over for lunch. You have a great time together. And after lunch is over, you turn to them and say, you know, thank you for this kind gesture. Can I have you over next week to pay you back? Reciprocity. Uh, Yesterday in the mail... My wife and I got a letter from U.S. Airlines, whoever U.S. Airlines actually is. And it described to us that 
we had won two tickets, two free tickets for anywhere in the continental United States, up to a $1,400 value. Certain restrictions apply, right? There's no such thing as a free lunch. You see, it's ingrained in the way we think that when a kind act is given to us, we then have to repay it somehow. It's very difficult for us to receive an act of pure, unmerited kindness without thinking there must be something reciprocal that happens here. See, but Jesus is full of grace. It's not full of reciprocity. So when our obedience to God is done under the guise of, oh, what can I do for God because he's done so much for me, we have actually reduced God's grace to a business transaction. We do so thinking that he actually wants to be repaid. It's an interesting dynamic that exists in our hearts because when we think that way, we actually think that we actually still have some ability in us to repay God. And that we should repay him. Well, I've kind of left you longing for the motivation for obedience. And what actually is it? If it's not just gratitude, well, then what is it? What's the the motivation? Our obedience should be motivated by trusting in God for present day grace and future grace. Not just grace in the past. Jesus does not just deliver God's past grace to us, but he actually delivers grace to us right now, today, and he will do so tomorrow. Present day favor. Future favor. Verse 16 says we've all received grace upon grace, grace on top of grace. His past grace shown in sending of the law through Moses and in sending Jesus to fulfill the demands of the law, guarantees that he will continue to give more and more and more of his grace to us right now, today. It's not just something for the past. And so we are free then to obey. We're free to obey knowing that that he's not looking for us to pay him back. We're free to obey, not as a way of doing something to become his sons and daughters, But we obey because that's who we are. The motivation is joy and hope and the guarantee of God's past, present, and future grace. It's freedom. And so the first thing we see is that Jesus, he's full of glory. He explains God to us. Jesus, full of grace, delivers God's grace to us. The third thing we're going to look at is in verses 6 and 8, actually, which we skipped last week, and verse 15 of chapter 1. And that is this, that Jesus, full of glory and grace, involves us in his mission. Look at these verses again with me. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. Did you notice the repetition of the word witness there? John the Baptist is also 
John the witness. John was sent by God to be a witness to clearly proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so he's asked if he is Christ. Is he Elijah? Is he a prophet? And his direct answer is, no, he is not the Christ. He is, however, a bold witness to Jesus who is the Christ. Look over at verse 29 of chapter 1. The next day he, that is John, saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And now verse 35 The next day, which is a different day than verse 29, John was standing with two of his disciples, and they looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. You know, it appears from these interactions that John wanted nothing more than to point out who Jesus was. He wanted the entire world to know that Jesus was the Lamb of God who had come to take away the sins of the world. His sole passion, his sole focus was to take the attention off of himself and to shine the light right onto Jesus. That was his mission. And so from the very beginning of John, we see that God's way of letting the light of Christ shine in the world is by human witness. You know, it didn't have to be that way. God could have done anything to cause the light of Christ to spread. He could have done it with angels. He could have spelled out the gospel in permanent puffy white clouds for every single generation to know. He could have caused the wind to talk. But instead, he uses people. Evidently, God's wisdom dictates that his son should be heralded, announced, and proclaimed by people, even though he could have managed totally fine on his own. So God's plan, then it appears, is to include us in his mission. Amazingly, he involves us in his mission to reach the nations with the message of his redemption, a human agency. Now, there are a myriad of implications that we could draw this morning from this, but in conclusion, I will point out just one. If you have seen and tasted the glory and grace of Jesus in your life. You see who he is. You understand who he is. You've experienced that grace. You are on a mission from God to herald, to announce, to proclaim the gospel. God uses human witnesses to dispel the darkness of this world. You know, in Jesus' own words, he said, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. You have a role to play in God's mission. Make much of Jesus in your life. If you tasted that grace, you've seen that glory, let that be the fuel which powers your passion to proclaim the gospel to those in your life to whom the glory and grace of Jesus is still veiled, it's still covered to them. You're on mission. You've experienced it. Be the light of the world. Let us, like John the Baptist, say, I must decrease. He must increase. Let's close in a word of prayer.
Father in heaven, I pray that that would be our sole passion in life. That we would say, you must increase. And we must decrease. Jesus, we thank you that in your sinless life, you lived the life that we were supposed to. And you died the death that we were supposed to die. What great grace. Father, please continue to help us to understand that grace and to see your glory and to obey you in all things in life, trusting in who you are and in who you have made us to be. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.